in Psalms 52 through 59, over the last few months, we've been tracking with David through a very turbulent time in his life. It was a time when he was a young man in his 20s and he was forced to flee from King Saul. And he spent several years running for his life. These psalms are filled with pleas for mercy and help from the Lord. And they reveal David's heart of faith as he endured a long and difficult trial over which he had no control. Then we come to Psalm 60. And the heading of Psalm 60 is very interesting. First of all, it provides a historical setting from the life of David, which is entirely different from the previous eight psalms. Instead of being hunted by King Saul, according to the heading of Psalm 60, David has now become king. And he's actively engaged in battles with several of the nations that are surrounding Israel in an attempt to expand his kingdom and his influence by subjugating those people. According to the historical accounts in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicle, First Chronicles, David's military campaigns were very successful. And he enjoyed God's blessing and help against all of his foes. And so when we read from Psalm 59 to Psalm 60, it would seem that we've kind of turned a page. There's virtually no connection with the previous collection of Psalms. We studied some of this out in the Sunday school hour. But there is something else in the heading that forces me to kind of step back and reconsider everything that I have said so far about Psalm 60. It's a single term. We can look at the heading there. Of course, as we've said before, to the chief musician set to the Lily of Testimony actually belongs to Psalm 59 as a postscript. So the heading begins a miktam of David for teaching when he fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah. And Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. If you want to understand that, just ask anybody who was in Sunday school. They'll be able to walk you through it. We spent 45 minutes trying to track that that heading down uh, and understand it in light of the rest of Scripture. And we still had to skip through a lot of things very quickly at the ends because I ran out of time. But... um, But there's something there. You may have missed it completely when we just read through it. It's that term, miktam, a miktam of David. Now the meaning of this term is uncertain, but it's used in the headings of the five psalms, beginning with Psalm 56 and ending with Psalm 60. And what's interesting about that, of course, is as I said, Psalm 60 appears to be a completely different setting in David's life. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 years later after the events that the previous uh, eight psalms had discussed. When David was on the run, he's no longer on the run. Now he's the king. Now he's the one in charge. Now he's the one going out and fighting battles and expanding his empire. And it would seem to have no connection whatsoever to Psalm 59, except for there's this term in the heading, miktam. And Psalms 56 and 57 and 58 and 59 all have that same 
word in their heading, and then Psalm 60. It would suggest very strongly that the editor of the book of Psalms, who we do not know for certain, but it would seem that the editor of the book of Psalms felt very strongly, and I believe was led by the Holy Spirit, to put this psalm in connection with those psalms, even though they are at such different points in David's life. Why would he do that? I believe it's to, to complement those psalms. There's something about Psalm 60, even though it's at such a different circumstance, such a different setting in David's life, there's something about this psalm that is complementary to the previous psalms. Now, there are several similarities, and we're going to read down through the psalm here in a minute, but there are several similarities between Psalm 60 and these earlier ones that we've been going through. Psalm 60 includes a plea for mercy, a plea for deliverance from God. It it includes a confession of God's sovereign lordship over the nations. That's a theme we've run run into several times in these these last few months. The, The psalmist's confidence in the Lord and his great power to save is another theme that we've seen over and over again. But the differences are also important. Because Psalm 60 contains an admission of guilt on the part of God's people where the previous ones had all reflected David's innocent suffering. Remember, David was loyal to King Saul. And in spite of his loyalty, he was hunted and attacked. And so all of those psalms, from Psalm 52 to 59, they profess David's innocence and the injustice of his persecution. But this psalm, Psalm 60, gives us a different picture entirely. What we see here is suffering and a need for deliverance from the enemies, but the suffering has come as a result of divine judgment. It's not unjust persecution. In spite of this, though, he still pleads for mercy and healing. Now, I had a good illustration of this a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I'll share this because, well, I'll just share it with you, but uh, Levi one night was not listening uh, or obeying what, what uh, I was telling him to do. I don't remember exactly what it was I had told him to do. And in, in disobeying and not following instructions, he got hurt. Okay? And I'm telling you this not to make fun of Levi. I'm telling you this. You'll see this actually probably comes back, reflects more poorly on me. Levi was disobeying and he got hurt while he was doing something he shouldn't have been doing. He was not doing what I told him to do and he got himself hurt. Okay? My first reaction, of course was to lecture him on the fact that the reason that he got hurt was that he wasn't obeying me, and he should have been obeying me, and if he had been obeying me, he would have never gotten hurt in the first place, right? Well, thank, thank God for wives who are tender-hearted mothers and who are wise, because my wife reminded me that my son was hurt and he needed my compassion. Regardless of why he got hurt, he was hurt and needed me to be compassionate about his hurt. And I am thankful, by the way, for a wife who will point those things out to me. Uh, And uh, I'm thankful for that. But this is a theme that we find in this psalm. And I'm very grateful for it. You see, David admits that he and his people have done wrong 
And they've brought God's hand down upon themselves in judgment. But he also knows that it's God who loves them and God who will prove faithful to keep his word in spite of their weaknesses and in spite of their enemies' great strength. David's confidence is not based on his having earned God's favor. His confidence is not based on the fact that since he's obeyed God and done everything right, he can expect God to come through for him. David's confidence is entirely rooted in the character of God. And he knows the character of God because God's word has made it plain. And so I'd like to read Psalm 60 and see these principles borne out in this psalm and how these principles speak then to us today. So start with me. You can follow along with me there in verse 1. David prays, O God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. O, restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Salah, that your beloved may be delivered. Save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is mine or is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Now the first stanza of this psalm is David's cry for mercy. His cry for deliverance from God. It speaks of the fact that God has turned His back on His people and has brought confusion and shame and hardship into their lives. But these opening verses, the first stanza, are really dominated by one word that is used in verse 5. It's the word, beloved. He says there that your beloved may be delivered. That term beloved is a very important word. It's a word that that speaks of great affection and endearment. And it's really striking in how it's used here in the psalm. I mean, just think about this. The psalmist cries out to the Lord because God has turned his back. He's become angry with his people. He's shaken them. He's divided them. He's forced them to drink from the cup of his wrath and they become drunk. A sorry state his people are in. And it's not just something that's past, it's ongoing there in verse 3. He says that uh, uh, it is, or verse 2, that it is shaking. It's still happening. God's people were suffering. They're like a wall that was broken down by a great earthquake. And the aftershocks continue to bring destruction and wreak havoc. And all of this is caused by God's hand. We, we, we can't make any mistake here. It's not that God stepped aside and let this happen to Israel. The way David describes it, God is the one who brought this on them. He is responsible for him. 
Would you pray to him in this situation? What would you say? Would you shake your fist toward heaven in anger because God has turned his back? Would you conclude that, well, even if you had done wrong and sinned against him, this is too much? That God is being unreasonable and cruel? That's how many of us respond when bad things happen. When sickness or death come to someone we love, when financial trouble strikes, when relationships break down, hurtful things are said to us or done to us, we have the tendency to blame God, to accuse Him of being unfair and unjust. That's why the word beloved is so striking here and so important. Because even when God is displeased with them, even when He has broken the earth apart, when He's forced them to see things that are hard and to drink from the cup of confusion, they are still His beloved. William Wilson defines the term beloved in this verse, and he says it it probably implies a more vehement affection of love. I like that. A more vehement affection. God's affection for His people is strong. It's fierce. It's intense. And that's exactly why He brought all this trouble on them in the first place. You see, it's not that He doesn't care about them. It's not that He's cruel. It's that He loves them with a more vehement affection. And so He takes steps to cause them to return to Him when they have wandered astray. We don't know exactly what their defection was here in this context. We discussed it in Sunday school a little bit. We came up with four theories and we can't decide between them. And they could all be wrong, I suppose. But clearly God was trying to get their attention. And clearly it worked. Psalm 60 is proof of that. And so I've entitled the opening stanza, Treasured by God. Because that is the heart of the matter here. God's people have sinned, and because of His fierce love for them, He has shaken them. He's broken them apart. He's brought confusion and despair down on their heads. But that's not all. You've got to notice what He says in verse 4. He's done something else for them. He says, You have given a banner to those who fear you. Now this verse is a little bit complicated, and uh, I couldn't find any agreement between the scholars that I read. In fact, even the English Bible translators from the different translations that you can pick up, they don't agree on how this should be translated. They disagree on how the original Hebrew should read here. But I do think that the New King James translation that I'm using here is very close to the literal meaning of the text. And it has the advantage of being the more difficult reading, so I think it's probably preferable. You have given a banner to those who fear you. God has given to His people, to those who trust in Him, He's given them a banner to unfurl because of the truth. There's an interesting connection here in language in this verse to a story from the book of Exodus, chapter 17. 
You might remember the, the story of the battle between the children of Israel and the Amalekites when Moses uh, sat up on a hillside overlooking the battle and we're told that he lifted his hands above his head. And as long as his hands were raised above his head, the Israelites prevailed in the battle. And as he began to get tired and his hands came down, that the Israelites began to lose the battle. And so, of course, we read that he had the support of two men who stood on either side holding his hands up so that they could be victorious in the battle. After the battle was finished and the Israelites had won, the Lord told Moses to make a memorial to the event. And so the prophet built an altar there. And in Exodus 17, we read that he called the altar Yahweh Nisi. Literally, Yahweh is my banner. What is David talking about here in Psalm 60? What is the banner that the godly may unfurl? I think the best explanation for it, even as he may be thinking back about Moses, his hands lifted up toward heaven, is that David is speaking about prayer. Alec Motier explains here that Moses saw his uplifted hands as a banner. And also his hands reaching out and touching God's throne. And so he entitled, he called the altar that he made, Yahweh my banner. Reflecting his prayer that he was unfurling to God, if you will. With his hands raised toward heaven. And what works for Moses, God's, or rather, uh, the prayerful dependence on God, who loves his people, that will work for David too, and that's why David cites it here. God has brought discomfort and distress on his people because of their sin, but he's also given them a banner to raise toward heaven in the midst of their suffering because of truth. And what is the truth which undergirds that prayer? It's none other than the fierceness of God's love for them. It may be hard to believe in the middle of intense suffering, even in the middle of divine judgment, that you are the beloved of God. And yet, that is exactly what His Word teaches concerning all those who've trusted in Him. You're called to live by faith. You're called to claim God's love as a present reality. Even when your circumstances would suggest otherwise. David here is writing. Presenting to us a picture of God. A God who treasures His people. So that you and I, if we know Christ, we can call ourselves the beloved of God. We can have that confidence that we can pray and He will hear why. Because He loves us with a fierce love, with an intense love and an affection that is very vehement and powerful. But of course, there's more to this truth than just God's love for His people. I'm sure that many of you at different times have watched someone you love go through uh, and struggle through a very difficult time. 
You watch this person that you love, and you had no power to affect their circumstances whatsoever. All you could do was watch as they suffered. Some of you may be doing that right now. Helplessly watching a loved one suffer. And your love for them may be very intense, but that love and the intensity of it doesn't mean that you can change anything for them. Many times it just means you'll suffer more than you would otherwise alongside them. But see, that's where you and God are different. Because David unfurls the banner to God that his beloved may be delivered by the mighty hand of God who is sovereign Lord over Israel as well as her neighbors. You see, the truth, God is loving. God's love for his people is fierce. It's it's vehement. It's powerful. But God is more than just loving. God is powerful and sovereign. And this is also revealed to us in the Scriptures. Look at verses 6-8. through Because David now quotes the Lord. God has spoken in His holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is a helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia shout in triumph because of me. It's really interesting, these three verses. It's a, it's a, we might call it an oracle, a revelation from God that David is sharing. It reveals, it reveals Yahweh's great power and His authority. And, and it's intended here to include all of the land of Israel, as well as the lands that are outside of it, that were the home of, of David's constant enemies. Notice he begins there in verse 6 by, by mentioning Shechem and Sakoth. These were cities on either side of the Jordan River. Shechem was on the west side, and Sakoth was on the east. Gilead and Manasseh. They, 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 these are regions. Of course, Manasseh is one of the tribes. Gilead is a region that includes parts of where the tribe of Manasseh settled, as well as, uh, as, well as uh, the, the tribes of Gad and Naphtali that settled on the east side of the Jordan River. And so Gilead and Manasseh reflects the, the holdings of the Israelite people on the east of the Jordan River. And then he speaks about Ephraim and Judah. They represent the tribal lands to the west between the Jordan River and the, and the Mediterranean Sea. And so by, by including these names of places here in Israel, David is, is, is showing that all of the land of Israel belongs to the Lord. All of the land of Canaan belongs to God. It's mine, says God. In one sense, in one sense, this would seem to be a reminder that everything is temporary because it really belongs to God. It doesn't really belong to them. But I would submit to you that their possession of the land is more secure because it belongs to God. You see? If their possession of the land was only based on their own ownership of it, rather than God's ownership, 
we would say it would only last as long as they are powerful enough to keep it. But if God owns it, if it's God's, if God can say every bit of this land is mine, then His people can look at Him and say, then what you've given us is ours. Never to be taken away. Not dependent on our strength to defend it. It's dependent on your ownership of it. It belongs to God and actually is more secure because of that. But notice here how he speaks of his own people. He mentions Ephraim and Judah. Specifically, Ephraim is the helmet for my head. Judah, my lawgiver. These terms are exalted positions of influence and authority. God is saying here through the, through the mouth of David that it's through His people, Israel, that He is going to exercise His rule and His authority. That He's going to use them by exalting them and then He's going to, to rule through them. Now you've got to see here the contrast though between their destiny and the destiny of their enemies. Their neighbors, Moab. Moab is a wash basin. Edom is a shoe rack. Philistia is the servant ready at hand to rejoice in the Lord's victory. Hard to imagine more debased and humiliated position than to be the wash basin and the shoe rack. When the master walks into his house, after being out in the fields or out on the dusty trails, and he takes off his sandals and he throws them into the corner and the servant was there to catch them and take care of them. I, that's a pretty debased position, but that's how he describes them here. You're the wash pot. You're to take care of cleaning things. You're to take care of the, the dirty shoes in the corner. Felicity here rejoicing, not because they have gained victory, but because God has won victory. There's a huge contrast here between the destinies of God's people and the destiny of their enemies. This is the word of the Lord which causes David to unfurl his banner of prayer to God. God will lead him into battle. God will lead him into the very stronghold of his enemies. He mentions them here in verse 8, or verse 9 rather, the strong city of Edom. He's talking about the fortified cities there. David is not just going to drive these people out of his land. He's actually going to go into their lands. He's going to subjugate them. He's going to force them into submission. Now again, you, we don't have time to look at this, but you can go back and compare with 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 1 Chronicles 18. And you can see how David was completely successful in these efforts. Why was he completely successful? Well, Psalm 60 explains to us why in the closing verses here. Because God went before him into battle, leading his warriors all the way into Edom. This is the key to victory. Look at what happened when God didn't go with them. Verse 10, is it not you, he says, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies? 
David is making it very clear here that the problem before was that the Lord cast them off. That he didn't go with them into battle. And therefore they had no hope of victory. And so what does David do? He casts himself on the Lord here. He's, he casts himself on the Lord. The second stanza, verses 6-12. through 12. Maybe. Sam, you want to give me an advance there? There we go. The second stanza here, trusting in God. Because, this is important, it's only when God goes with him that he can succeed. That's David's confession here. It's only when God goes with him that he can succeed. Now some people might say, well, I don't think we should go quite that far. It seems a little bit, of ex- little bit extreme. I mean, it's not like we can't do anything on our own. But David confesses here, In no uncertain terms, in verse 11, that the help of man is useless. That word useless is an interesting term. It means vain or false. It's actually a word that's used often when the Bible speaks of idols. Idols are useless things, but idols are also false. They're deceptive things. And I think it's especially interesting that he would use that here to speak of the deliverance of men. The word help there is the word for rescue or salvation. The the salvation of men is useless, he says. It's false and deceptive. You see, it's not just that trusting in men doesn't work. It's not just that it's ineffective. It's actually idolatry. It's worse than useless. It's offensive to God. I mean, think about it. You have Yahweh here, the Almighty God. He owns everything, right? He owns everything from Gilead to Judah and everything in between. Moab is his washpot. Edom is his his shoe rack. And Philistines rejoice in his victory. These are his servants ready at hand. Instead of trusting in Him, you'd choose the help of man? What an insult! What an offense to God! What a slap in the face of God to trust in man. I see, we have this idea that, that if we don't choose to trust in God, if we just kind of want to kind of go our own way, do our own thing, that we're not hurting anybody, it's just us, And we're just kind of doing what we want and and we're not bothering anybody, but that's just not the case. The truth is it's rebellion against God and it's dishonoring to His name because it treats Him with despite, with dishonor. This God who is great, who owns everything, who rules over the nations, and you reject His help, and instead you seek the help of someone inferior who's ineffective and useless and vain and ultimately idolatrous. Because you're choosing someone else when you ought to be choosing God. You're trusting in someone else when you ought to be trusting in the Lord. We need to understand this morning 
That salvation, rescue, deliverance by the hand of man is useless. It's nothing but idolatry and wicked rebellion against God. The prayer of your heart and of your lips ought to be, Lord, give us help from trouble. That's David's prayer in verse 11. Lord, give us help from trouble. But I think it's interesting that the last verse also shows us something about what it means to trust in the Lord. Because praying and depending on God does not mean throwing your hands in the air and just giving up and kind of a let go and let God kind of a thing. I'm just going to sit back and I'm I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to let God kind of do His stuff and I'm just going to trust Him. He'll work it all out. Let go and let God. Because verse 12 suggests to us it's something very different than that. That prayerful dependence on God means going forward into battle with the confidence that God is with you and that by His strength you will prevail. I love how David puts it here. He says, we will do valiantly. We will do valiantly. David and his men, they're going to go to battle and they're going to fight and they're going to fight valiantly. But notice the second half of the verse. Why? For it is he who shall tread down our enemies. We're going to go to the battle and we're going to do valiantly because God, you're going to step on the neck of our enemies. (laughs) We're going to go to battle and do valiantly because you're going to defeat everybody. when I was in junior high, I remember I, I played basketball. Well, I didn't really play basketball. I was on the team. But um, I, was, I was never much of a basketball player, really. But I remember in junior high, and we had a, a, a I was in seventh grade, and we had a kid on our team. Uh, his name was Mark. He's a pastor out in California now. And uh, very gifted athlete, um, very intelligent um, young man, and, and and uh, it was interesting because when I was in seventh grade, we had a seventh and eighth grade boys basketball team, and our offense was get the ball to Mark. <laughs> I mean, that's, our coach didn't call it that. I'm sure we had another name, but it was a triangle or a square or something. But, but it was get the ball to Mark. That was our offense. And I remember one particular game where we were playing against another team. I mean, we were playing. They were playing. I was watching from the bench. But they were playing. <laughs> I have to be honest, okay? They were playing. And I remember the team that we were playing against, it was kind of the same way. They had one guy in their team that just flat out could score. His name was Jeremy. He's a pastor's kid from Greendale. And, uh, and I remember, we, I just remember watching this game. Mark would go down, he'd score. Jeremy would come down, he'd score. Mark would go down, he'd score. Jeremy would come down, he'd score. It's like bang, 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 back and forth the whole game long. It was intense. It was insane. But it was like, you know what? We were going to do valiantly, man. We were going to win. Because Mark was going to go out and score a lot of points. <laughs> I mean, that's the way it was, you know. It was like, we won a lot of games because Mark went out and scored a lot of points. And I cheered along, you know. That was cool. David says, we're going to go do valiantly. We're going to go out to battle. We're going to go into battle with confidence because God is going to do great things. He's going to drive out the enemy. He's going to trample them down. David's not taking any credit for it here. 
There's no glorying in his own ability to make war. There's no selfish boasting here. It's just the humble recognition that without God, he can do nothing. And with God, he will do nothing of himself, but only that which brings glory to God. You see what I did there? It's not, it's not without God, we can do nothing. With God, we can do everything. No, it's without God, we can do nothing. And with God, we can do nothing that brings glory to ourselves. Whatever we do, it's God who does this great work. That's the attitude that David shows here in the psalm as he unfurls his banner to pray to the Lord for help. Let me see if I can put it another way. If you try to go it alone, you will fail. If you trust in man, you will fail. If you trust in God, he will succeed. But there's no scenario in which you get the glory for victory. Either you will glory in the Lord for the victory He has won as you've trusted in Him, or you will bear the shame and the agony of defeat when the Lord does not go out with you because you don't trust in Him. That's the situation that we see here. So let's not think that we can do this and go get glory for ourselves. All of the glory belongs to the Lord. I think Psalm 60 is a very fascinating psalm. You are beloved by God if you trust in Him. And you are called to walk by faith and trusting in the Lord each and every day. But there's something else that's fascinating here that I kind of touched on earlier. The location of Psalm 60 in the Psalter is interesting. The fact that it's the last one in this string of five miktams of David is no accident. If we compare the prayers of Psalm 59 and 60 side by side, we see another very important consideration. This, I think, is really significant. Sometimes we get in trouble through no fault of our own. Sometimes, when we're just trying to serve the Lord and do right, trouble finds us, it chases us down, it tackles us, and it sits on our chests and gloats. But other times, we bring trouble down, down on ourselves. Right? We go wandering down a path of sin, a familiar path, knowing exactly where that path leads, but just wanting to indulge ourselves a little bit, or we set out on our own apart from God with no thought for our need of Him, no thought of the fact that in doing this in our own strength, we are insulting the power and the love of God. And we end up in a heap of trouble. But, as one writer put it, but, and this is the wonderful thing, whether we are wholly innocent or whether we are seriously and very much at fault, the way of prayer is still open and effective. Will you unfurl the banner that God has given to those who fear Him, who trust in His name? Will you pray to the one who treasures you so much that He withholds nothing that is good from you who are His child? I trust that you will. Let's pray together.